The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they save themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. But the Lord told Gideon, There are still too many. Bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, Divide the men into two groups. And one group put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. And the other group put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, With these 300 men I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. That night the Lord said, Get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Purah. Listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. So Gideon took Purah and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up, just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. Then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the entire camp and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. It was just after midnight after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Beth Shetah near Zerah and to the border of Abel Mehalah near Tabath. Chapter 8. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you have rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. However, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. The enemies, being Ishmaelites, all wore gold earrings. Gladly, they replied, they spread out a cloak, and each one threw in a gold earring that he had gathered from the plunder. The weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and pendants, the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian, 
or the chains around the necks of their camels. Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Oprah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. Two things we'll focus on in this particular passage tonight, that the gospel shifts your center of gravity. God's gracious work in your life, it shifts your center of gravity, and it also, secondly, shifts your source of confidence. Join me in praying before we get into this, because we need God's help. Father, do come tonight and be faithful to your word around the world today, around the world this week, around the world tonight. uh, People are standing up, and you are speaking your word through them, and in doing so, you are leading your sheep, and you are pursuing sheep, and you are making people sons and daughters, and you are reminding forgetful sons and daughters that they are yours. So come tonight, Holy Spirit, sanctify us, draw us nearer to you. Let tonight be one more inch towards being made into the image of Jesus, we pray uh, in his name. Amen. Uh, This picture that's coming up here is what backpackers call a scree slope. S-K-R-E-E. Scree is kind of really brittle, hard, smallish rocks. And a slope full of scree is a mountain slope or a hill slope that's covered in these kind of rocks. And it's not like gravel. Gravel's so small that when you put your foot into it, it kind of gives way, makes a little footprint almost, catches your foot. Scree is different. It's very hard. And when you step on it, it doesn't move. It slides out from under you. Scree is what's behind rock slides, landslides, avalanches. Um, I've told you all before different stories from this adventure, but uh, the summer after I graduated UGA, I got to spend a a summer in Western Australia. We were 100 kilometers deep into the outback and were basically hiking that whole time to a a destination a long way away that we would get picked up at uh, a long time after that. And we crossed a lot of scree slopes. I didn't know what they were until that trip. And it was kind of scary walking across those until you get the hang of it. The only way to walk across a scree slope is to, like if the slope is right here and it's at an angle like that or like that, the only way to walk across it is to go low and to lean the center of gravity of your body and your pack into the mountain. If you just stand up and try to walk like normal, um, your center of gravity, your pack will topple you over off the side and you'll roll down one of those things. And because there's nothing to grab onto or hold around you, you'll keep rolling until you hit the bottom, however long the hill is that you're up uh, up there is. And so on a scree slope, the terrain itself, the, the earth itself, requires you to shift your weight, shift the center of your gravity, and to lean in towards the mountain. And that's actually what the first few times we encountered these and, and crossed over these, not this one, that's a stock image. But the, the first few times we passed over places like these, our instructors, as like all 15 of us are walking through this thing, and they're like, please don't anyone die, you know, our first week out here. They would say, get low, hold to the mountain. Get low, hold to the mountain. Because your tendency is just to kind of just walk like this through it. 
Get low, hold to the mountain. Get low, hold to the mountain. It's the only way you can get across a scree slope. The Christian life is one where God often leads you over terrain like this. And it's an apt metaphor for what our life with him and what our journey with him feels like because he leads us over stuff like this. The ground that he puts us on is often slippery and it's slanted and it's often so treacherous that it that, that the terrain that you're in, the situations that you're in, the place that you're in pushes you back on him. And you must shift the center of your gravity and hold to the mountain, hold to the only immovable object around, the only steady thing around, or else your center of gravity will take you down. So I think about this stuff. I think about those hikes and that slippery ground when I was reading this passage. Because we, we talked about it last week. We talk about it again tonight. But Gideon has finally listened to God enough to be persuaded that God simply is God. That he will do for Gideon and his people, Israel, what he says he will do. I mean, if you've been here the past few weeks, we've been talking about Gideon three weeks now. Finally, Gideon listens. Finally, you start to see him mustering up the courage to follow God into the hard places that God had called him. And it's just as the armies of Israel are finally being mustered, they're finally assembling. That's where chapter 7 starts. They finally gathered up and they're gearing up for battle. And then something odd happens because it seems like God begins dismantling the very army that he seems to have been saying is going to be what he uses to defeat this big, bad army of the Midianites. And it's a curveball. And it's God putting Israel and Gideon on scree, on slanted ground. They finally thought everything was working out. God is delivering like he said he was going to deliver. All these signs, he's confirmed he loves us, he's with us, he's reassured us in our fears. And we're like getting our armor on to go charge this enemy. And now it seems like he's dismantling the very things that are necessary to him doing what he said he was going to do. Can you relate to the feeling? So the Lord says to Gideon and his people in uh, verse 2, you have too many people. And so uh, God gives an out to all of the people in this army who are afraid of what's about to go down. I mean, remember, the Midianites had them under their thumb for seven years. They were brutal. So it's understandable that a lot of people in this crowd don't want to fight. And so he says, if you're afraid, you can go home. Now, this probably seems somewhat logical to Gideon at this point. He's probably unnerved when he hears the Lord say this. Like, we can't afford anyone to leave. Everyone's got to stay and we got to fight. But it also could have made sense to him. You could rationalize that. Would you want to go to battle with 22,000 cowards who don't want to fight, who are going to retreat at the first sign of a spear? So maybe Gideon's thinking, okay, we're still okay. We're still good. We got 10,000 men. And at least now we know these are the ones who are at least up for the fight. So that could have been what Gideon is probably thinking, that God has just winnowed out the weaklings. Oh, he's purifying the force. He's only leaving behind the special forces. The best of the best, the cream of the crop. This is good. 
I can get on board with this. All right, let's start getting back to getting ready for this battle. And so God comes back and he says, Gideon, you're getting warmer, but you're still not hot. There's still too many warriors. There's still too many warriors, Gideon. There's too many men that you're going to go into battle with. And so God brings the Israelites and Gideon through this weird situation where the end result is that 9,700 of the 10,000 people have been winnowed out too. Uh, A quick side comment in case you've heard of this stuff before, you've read this before. A lot of people have tried to make sense of this and they say, well, actually God was, God was testing the soldiers to see who was a true warrior, a true soldier. So he said, everyone go over here and drink. And then the people that took their eyes off the enemy and, and got down and drank from their hands. Those are the, those are the people that got sent home, but the people who are vigilant and aware of the enemy and never took their eyes off the Midianites and drank like this, that's who he, but it doesn't make any sense from the passage. The passage is making the opposite point, not that point. God is not purifying or strengthening or vetting or, uh, or refining the strength of Israel's army. He's doing the exact opposite of that. He's not, this is not, a, if you saw the movie 300, it's just a coincidence that this is 300 soldiers. Nothing alike. These are not the chiseled, ripped, kind of battle-hardened warriors this is kind of like all the guys with guts got in the army. And they're just kind of like twiddling thumbs like, what are we going to do? God is not strengthening the army. He's weakening the army. He's putting his people on a slant that they must hold to the mountain and get low. And he says as much right out in the open. He says, if I let all of you fight the Midianites, you would boast to me that you saved yourselves by your own strength. And I find this fascinating because we have a complicated relationship all of you you do and i do we have a complicated relationship with competence we have a strained history with success i know you've asked for people to pray for you for tests that you really did think you were going to fail like you weren't even going to get a 50 on it and you like gather up all these friends to pray for you and then the test goes well And then afterwards, you're like, they're like, how'd the test go? You're like, oh, yeah, it went fine. I forgot. Yeah, yeah, thanks for praying. I forgot you were praying for me. You know, last night I went and I spoke somewhere else. And as I told you last week, I never feel prepared uh, because of my own issues that I'm working through and and, uh, trusting Jesus through. But I don't feel prepared and I feel a little nervous. And it was a crowd I didn't know. And so I'm, I'm about to go up to speak and I'm texting my wife and I'm saying, babe, pray for me. I'm about to go up. I don't feel so great about this. Um, and she texts me back, I'm praying. And an hour later when it's all over, um, I call her on the way home and I'm like thrown off by her tone. She's like, so how did it go? I'm like, man, she's really into this talk. Why are you so interested? And, uh, I was like, oh yeah, it went fine. And she's like, wait, what? You see what had happened there? It went fine. And immediately, not in a way that I even articulated, but immediately I attributed it went fine to me. I forgot the desperation I was in just an hour before the weakness that I felt going into something without the resources I felt I needed. And I know you and I do it, too, because we all have a complicated relationship with being competent people or successful people, even the tiniest bit of success. Subconsciously, will take credit for it somehow. It was me that did that. And 
God's people have this problem too in this passage. And so what is God doing to kind of flank this tendency in us to sneak around it, lest our hearts harden and we become more and more and more arrogant, self-righteous, self-reliant, independent, autonomous, godless people? What does he do to sneak past your defenses and meet us with his grace inside of us? Well, what he does is what he does here. He saves you. He saves everybody in a way, and he sustains you in a way that you couldn't take credit for if you tried. If you hired a ghostwriter to write your autobiography, he or she couldn't do it either. The way that God saves, the way that he converts, the way that he sustains his people is impossible to be explained by natural means, by you, by your wisdom, by your strength, your fortitude, your endurance, your savvy your intellect. It's just impossible. God will save you or sustain you in a way where you can't simply give credit to that loyal friend who's stuck by your side. Uh, you, you won't be able to explain it away in like my uh, emotional sense of his presence or whatever got me through it. Or, or I've really learned a lot from my past lessons. I got a lot of scars. I've learned these lessons and I can get through it now. You won't be able to credit it to that either. God works in a way to remove all doubt that you and I have anything to do with our sustenance, our survival, our thriving, and our even being alive in Jesus. He's intent on working this way. So uh, if your story and you know, your story of like God's work in your life or your story as a Christian or your story as a religious person is entirely explainable as a series of your decisions, your epiphanies, your actions, your desires. I doubt whether God's at work in your life at all. Because a lot of people can explain away their stories entirely just with themselves, their own wisdom, their own decisions, their own past, their own determination to be better, do something different, seek God or whatever else. A story that is marked by God's presence is a story that can only be explained by God's presence and by his power. And this is why he works the way he does. You go read the book of first and second Corinthians and see how Paul talks about the way that Jesus works in weakness. His power is most clearly revealed. Paul prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, remove this limp, remove this glitch, remove this thing that's taking away all the resources that I need to do what you've called me to do. And Jesus says, no. And a few months or years later, when Paul has an intense season of praying again, Jesus says, no. And a few years or months later, when Paul has another intense season of desperately praying to remove this thorn, Jesus says, no. And this time he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is most clearly revealed when you are weak, when you are low, and when you're on a slant. Jesus' power in you is most revealed in your weakness. His resurrection is most revealed in your places of death. His grace is most revealed in your inability to do anything about your predicament or anything about your guilt or anything about your shame. That's when it's most visible. So you look back at a story and you say, what's the evidence of a story marked by God's presence? Well, we said God's presence. 
but it feels experientially like, whoa, I was hanging by a thread. There's no earthly explanation for how I am, where I am today, or who I am today. Now, some of you might be thinking, but Ben, I've got one of those stories where, you know, I I knew God from, I thought I was a Christian since the earliest days of my life. I don't remember a day that I didn't know the Lord. My story is totally explainable through natural means. I had Christian parents. I went to church. They prayed for me. And I'd say, I don't think you've thought about your story enough. It's inexplicable how you went from spiritual death and at enmity with God, alienated and cut off from him, rightly under his wrath. And at some point, even though the moment was unbeknownst to you, you were alive in Jesus, united to him, innocent and pure, delighted over, sung over, called daughter, called son, adopted a full heir to Jesus and all that he has. You can't convince me that that's explicable by anything that you or your mom or your dad did. Yes, he worked through means. Yes, he worked through those things. But I think it's like that little girl in the New Testament where the father comes and gets Jesus and he says, my daughter is sick and Jesus gets there and his daughter's dead. And Jesus says, Talitha kum, little girl, rise up. Did her father pray for her? Sure. Did her father go and get Jesus? Sure. Did her parents love her? Sure. Did her parents resurrect her? No. Did she resurrect herself? No. So even if you think you have an ordinary, explicable story, it is inexplicable. It is impossible to explain in your own power. You know, this is especially true. We've already kind of been dancing around it. But this kind of this principle that God works in weakness is especially true. It hits its crescendo in the Bible when it comes to how God saves people, how he converts people, how he brings people to new birth. If you've been around RUF that long, you know, we don't kind of overtly talk about things like predestination or Calvinism or Reformed theology under that name a lot. And you might be surprised if you're new. Well, that's what you're named, Reformed University Fellowship. We talk about it when it's in the passage. And it's often in the background of the passage. It's often in the background of a lot of what we say, but I feel this is an appropriate moment to bring it into the light, the center of the stage and from the side of the stage and say, this is what the Bible is doing when it's talking about how God saves. And it, and it speaks clearly from Old Testament to new throughout that God unilaterally saves sinners because they are dead and they cannot cry out. How do you cry out for mercy when you're dead? How do you sense you need God when you're dead? He does all the saving He does all the sensitizing. He does all of it, all the conviction, all of the first breath of life into you that you might take a first breath and cry out for him. I believe this because it's clearly taught in the Bible, even under these explicit names. But I believe it secondly because there's no explanation. I had no explanation for my story apart from this. Because I was running as fast as I had ever run away from God right before I was converted and he brought me into his kingdom. I wanted to be done with it all. There is no explanation in my past, nothing in the months leading up to my conversion that I can say, that's how it, that friend, or Ben did this, or Ben decided this, or Ben had some big epiphany. It was God sovereignly and unilaterally working on my, on my behalf while I was a sinner, while I was weak, while I was ungodly. That is how he saves. And again, I've said it. He does it in a way 
that you will not be able to take credit. And here's the other reason why. Because if you take credit, if you think that you are the one doing the saving, do you understand what's on your shoulders for the rest of your life? The crushing weight of messianic expectations. Now you're Jesus and you must save yourself. The problem is you're not righteous like Jesus, pure like Jesus, good like Jesus, and you're not God like Jesus. And you can't die on a cross to atone for your sins like Jesus. If you live a life thinking, I got myself into the good graces with God, my devotion, my, my saying the prayer, my walking the aisle, whatever it is, do you know what you've done for the rest of your life if you, has, you have put messianic weight, messianic expectations on yourself? God doesn't want you to do that. He wants to lift that burden too. And that's why he goes so far out of his way to explain how he saved you unilaterally through Jesus. That you might have peace. That you might know that burden fell on Jesus' shoulders, not your shoulders. That God willingly carried that weight and that burden for you. He's not looking at you to carry that weight and that burden. And this is a lot of why he is taking away our soldiers, taking away our resources, taking away things we think we have to have because he's subtly daily in your life trying to massage this message deep into your heart. Ben, I am your salvation. Ben, I am your sustenance. I am your life. I am your savior. You are not your savior, Ben. You do not sustain you. You do not save you. That is why God has put us on slanted ground and says, keep low and hold the mountain. Keep low and hold the mountain lest you slip. Lest you get up and start walking normally through life like you've done everything and like it's all on you going forward and you topple over because your center of gravity is in yourself. This is why God acts in these ways. John Newton captured this most beautifully as he often does. He wrote Amazing Grace. We've talked about him a lot in here, but he says it's after a long experience of our own deceitful hearts. It's after repeated evidence of our weakness, stubbornness, ingratitude, and hard-heartedness that we find none of these things can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Some of the clearest proofs that we have had of Christ's excellence have been occasioned by the most horrible evidence we've seen of our own unworthiness. Friends, I think it's like a movie. In order to see a movie, you have to dim the lights. And in order to see God's power unleashed on your behalf, he has to dim your strength. He turns it down that you might see what's happening right in front of your eyes. And I know some of you suffer and you groan because your weakness feels like weakness and you don't have enough money, you don't have enough assurance, you don't have enough emotional peace, you don't have enough physical health. And I'm telling you, he is dimming the lights that you might see what is happening right before your eyes. You've tried to watch movies in a well-lit room. It doesn't work. You barely see anything. And he wants you to see it all. That is why he knocks us off center to pull us closer into the mountain. The last thing we'll talk about tonight is this shifting sense of confidence. The gospel, God through his gospel is not just shifting your center of gravity off of yourself and onto the mountain, onto him. But he's also 
in that shifting your source of confidence. And this already makes sense, or it should in your mind, because it's part and parcel with what we've already talked about. How does your, your sense of confidence shift off of yourself and into him? We'll take a few stabs at it from the passage. Faith or confidence in God grows, I think, a lot like muscles grow. Muscles grow when they're used. Muscles grow when they're strained, when there's resistance, when they're exercised. Muscles don't grow when they sit there. Faith doesn't grow when it sits there. Faith grows when it works, when it moves, when it acts, when it's under strain, when it's under resistance. I am... I find it interesting that Gideon, this same gutless Gideon, the same fearful warrior pastor from Judges 6, is now rallying the troops to run right into the bullets of the Midianites. I find that a fascinating turn of events in just two chapters or a couple of months of this man's life. How did it happen? Because Gideon had stepped into the breach, into the uncertainty, into the weakness of his own story enough times to see God show up and deal with him graciously, deal with him powerfully. Gideon had just seen God shown up enough times where he started to expect it. Do you remember the first Judges 6, what God asked Gideon to do? Go into town and topple all the statues over? That's like go into D.C. and knock over all the the monuments. You're going to get arrested or you're going to get killed. Gideon was terrified. But Gideon had seen the Lord show up and defend him and protect him. The next thing is God calls Gideon into battle. and He says, reassure me, reassure me, reassure me. Dance with me that I know it's you. And God does and he does and he does. Gideon is exercising this faith or God is exercising it for Gideon. And it's getting stronger and it's getting stronger. And now Gideon is able to move his feet and move towards this terrible enemy. And even still, there's a little bit of fear there, and God does not slap it away, but he says, Gideon, if you're afraid, we'll take this slow. Go and listen to the side of one of the tents. And Gideon grabs a friend, and he goes and listens. And and this person at that very moment is saying, you won't believe what I just dreamed, dude. This big loaf of bread came down the mountain and knocked over our huts. And Gideon must have been weeping in that moment, just shaking with confidence and shaking with affirmation that this God is for me, even in the tiny details of a stranger's dream. And he goes back up into the mountain and guess what? Gideon starts talking like God. Did you see that he says almost verbatim what God says in verse nine? God says, And that night the Lord said, get up, go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over the Midianites. By the time we get to verse 15, Gideon says to the men, get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. Friends, you see God show up enough in your life and be God and be who he says he is and provide for you in the ways he always said he he would you'll start to see yourself moving towards threats and dangers and things that scare you, things you thought you'd never run into. For some of you, it's a dating relationship. You're me. You never asked anybody out because you were terrified of what to do next. What if they say no? For some of you, it's maybe getting out of a relationship you probably think you should be out of. For some of you, it's finally saying to somebody in this room, I'm really confused about all this God stuff. Can you help? 
sort out my, can you answer my questions? Can you just set it straight for me? When you believe and you've seen God show up enough times in your life and be God, you begin to move and you begin to actually think like God and God's confidence in himself as the supreme one. He has no competitor, no equal. God's confidence in himself begins to become your confidence in God. The way God thinks of himself is now the way you think of God and the way God talks is the way you talk and the way he acts is now the way you act. It's contagious. And that's what we see happening in Gideon's life. Knowing that God is in every single detail, even to the level, even to the silly level of a stranger's dream, really frees you to start throwing the ball and not have to run on every play. One yard, one yard. But you get to get out there and have fun in your life and take risks because there is one who knows you, loves you, and is committed to you and is including you in his work in the world. A couple of examples, and we'll start to land this plane. I think um, I, I touched on this last week, but I think it's worthy of coming back to we can be people who are so book smart in the things of God. We know it all. We know all about prayer, but we don't pray. We know all this stuff that I've said to you. But there are strongholds. There are fears. There are things in your life that you will not go anywhere near, not within 30 feet of it. It's kryptonite to you. And you will not move towards it. And, and the, these kind of stories with Gideon push us back to a place of asking, what God am I with? Who is he? And it pushes you back to a place of listening to him as he speaks to you and he says, I'm with you, I'm for you. This is who I'm making you into. This is where this whole story ends. Guys, I'm a guy. I have license to say this. I think this is behind why guys in RUF don't sign up for anything until the day or the night of the deadline because you have to see that it's safe. I never signed up for anything until I knew every single other friend of mine who was there. I would not walk into the uncertainty. I wouldn't walk into the scariness of could I go on a retreat or a mission trip or some other event and not have my crew with me? I was unwilling to face the fear. And I think that has something to do with that. It's not just because we're guys. We just, I think we're scared. I think we're scared. And we're scared because we don't know that we live our life shoulder to shoulder in solidarity with Jesus. Who is bigger than not having friends on a retreat. And could be using that retreat to push you off kilter that you're leaning into the mountain. I think it's why some of you have a hesitancy to correct a roommate who you know and have known for six months needs to be graciously, gently called out because they're in a dangerous place spiritually. When you know that you walk shoulder to shoulder with this Jesus and this conqueror, and he has already shown you where the story ends, it frees you to move into those places. Friends, the Christian life never stops at thinking about stuff and ruminating about it and processing it in a Bible study and praying about it. There will come a moment in every area of your life, a get up and act moment. Get up and put your armor on and move towards the threat, move towards the danger, move towards the uncertain thing. There will always come one of those moments. Gideon had to fight. Gideon didn't get to walk away and say, okay, Lord, I get it. You, you're a conqueror. You fight my battles for me. You know, you're bigger than the Midianites. God said, okay, get your armor on and let's go. And you see the result. 
It was a bloodless battle, at least bloodless from the Israelites. All they did is blow ram's horns and hide their torches. And at one moment, they let them all see. But listen, Gideon had to devise the battle plan. God didn't say divide all the people up into three groups. Put your torches in clay pots so they can't see it until at the same time. Blow ram's horns. Gideon knows his God. He knows his general. He knows the general's desires. And so he knows how to execute it in a specific situation by faith. He's taking a risk. He's walking into the darkness, but Gideon knows his God by this point. I know him. I've seen him too many times. There is one danger here, though. You can see God show up so many times in your life that it actually, this shifting confidence, it goes both ways. Your confidence can shift and uplift out of your heart and be placed into God, but it can come back into you too. And that's why we had this little end of Judges 8 in here. Gideon had defeated the Midianites. It was unbelievable. It's a story that's being told 2,500 years later in Athens, Georgia. It's a big deal. He's a celebrity pastor now, and everybody says, king, king, king. And Gideon defers, and he says, I won't be your king, but... And he starts doing this stuff that the Israelites did in Exodus 20. Bring me your gold earrings so that I can make something that's going to bring down the presence of God. I don't know how, but somehow something got into Gideon's head. And Gideon began to think that I have to control God again. I can't trust him with the future. And so Gideon makes this golden ephod, which is a long story. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you, Gideon was using as kind of a magic eight ball for Israel to peek around the corner of the future. It's what the high priest wore. But Gideon is saying, I don't trust him anymore, or I think I'm better in the driver's seat. And so Gideon puts himself up as this eight ball for Israel. And all the Israelites, the text says, prostitute themselves in front of it. They give themselves away. And you say, Gideon. And we're just disappointed and deflated in another leader, another pastor who's fallen, who leads people into idolatry. And this is such a familiar story. I was watching a video the other day. It was of five pastors. It was in 2010. So this is 10 years ago. Today, only two of them still have ministries. Only two of them still have wives. Two of them were deposed from ministry for spiritual abuse or basically being control freaks who bullied their people. One of them was deposed for addiction and leaving his family. These are all names you would know, and they're all people that I respected and listened to and read their books. doesn't mean they're awful people. It means confidence can shift both ways, friends. You can be walking with the Lord one month, and you can get a big head starting to think these are my deliverances, my wisdom, my strength. And you can let people adore you and admire you and respect you and leave you on that pedestal. And all of a sudden, now you're leading other people into idolatry and you have fallen. So friends, what is our hope? I'm going to tell you, this is the last moment in the book of Judges that you're going to see a glimmer of hope in a judge. Gideon's the last time you're going to see glimmers of goodness in one of these leaders. It all goes downhill from here. And so Judges is focusing this light of hope, this ray of hope. It gets smaller and smaller until there's a laser focus on one man who's not even physically present in this account. 
But it's the man that all these stories are about principally and point to. Jesus Christ, the true leader of God's people, the true warrior who fights your battles, the one who says he is with you, the one who says nothing, whatever you're going through right now, does not have more power than him and therefore it cannot separate you from his love. Everybody will disappoint you. Every pastor you have will let you down. Every intern you have will disappoint you. You will disappoint all your friends. You will disappoint your kids one day. There is only one person who exists who will not disappoint you, who you can put your faith fully in, who you can lean towards and hold to without any threat of being left high and dry. And it is Jesus Christ who has given himself as a ransom for you. So friends, come to him. Whether you know him or don't, the the, the call is the same. Lean in and hold the mountain or you will fall. Let's pray. Jesus, help us. Help us. Help us. Pull us in. I pray especially tonight for my brothers and my sisters, my dear friends who are on such slanted ground that they don't know why it hurts so much. They, They feel like this is so abnormal. Somehow I'm off the map. Something's going wrong. And I pray that you would just preach to their hearts good news, that you love them and that's why they're on slanted ground. You are pulling them closer to yourself. Jesus, protect us from puffed up hearts that just grow so proud and so quickly take glory and credit. And let us be so content to boast in you and to boast in our weakness to show others the things that show you big and beautiful. We ask this in your name. Amen.